The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. You are listening to judging Megan with your host, Megan judge. Um, I usually try to start out these podcasts with some sort of story, but what I will tell you today is I I am on my three years of podcasting and um, I'm so honored to be at this anniversary. I'm honored to be in a good place mentally. Not, I'm not always in a good place mentally, but today is a good day. And I'm just so grateful to all of you for your support and, you know, your nice reviews. And I'm always honored when people reach out to me and try to tell me their own stories and try to connect people with different people to try and help them. And that's what this podcast is really all about. We've all been put here for a reason and we all deserve acceptance. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud and have been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out. From recovering to surviving and thriving, we all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. So today I'm really honored to introduce Angela Kennecke. She is an award-winning broadcast journalist, and she runs a charity in honor of her daughter, Emily's Hope. And I am incredibly honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining. Well, Megan, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on three years. That's a great milestone. I know. I'm really, you know, when I started this, and and I'm, I'm always... I I always feel like I should have gone into, I was a broadcast journalism minor in college, but I took the the route of theater instead. So I started out after college going down that, you know, that uh, area. But 
I love having journalists on the podcast. I learn, I love the way that I can always tell who's the journal, who has a background in journalism. And I'm just really honored to have you on. And before we start, I kind of talked to you for a few minutes about what we're going to talk about today. In the U.S., we're in a major mental health crisis. We're also in, and I talk about this a lot, we're also in the center of a major drug epidemic. We have a homeless crisis. It just seems like every day it's just being piled on and piled on. I live in Los Angeles. I live right by the beach. I'm very lucky to live where I live. But, you know, over the weekend, I witnessed just walking down the pier more homeless than I've ever seen. Where, like, where, what are we doing to help these people? And it's just like rehousing people is not the answer. It re- the root of all of this is education and, and getting to the root of the problem and talking to our kids. And so I'm just so honored that, you know, I'm sorry that you're on here to talk about the loss of your daughter. But whenever I have somebody that comes on and they share their grief and they share what they've gone through in their own life and they try to use what they've that horrible, horrible pain to help other people, I can never tell you how much that means to me personally and also to my listeners. So I just want to say that before we kind of go into your story. Well, thank you. And I think you're right. Mental health and substance use disorder are at the root and it's kind of the chicken and the egg with those two issues. You know, did it start with a mental health issue and progress to substance use disorder? Or did it start with substance use disorder that caused the mental health issues? But that's at the root of the homelessness crisis that we're seeing in this country as well. Well, before we get into, I just kind of want to hear about your background for my audience and where you're from and a little bit about you. Well, I live in the Midwest. I live in what's known as a flyover state, South Dakota, but I've worked as a journalist, a broadcast journalist for 35 years. So I'm really kind of dating myself. You look Um, too young for that, Angela. There's no (laughs) way. Thank you. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, But I I loved it and and still love it. Um, I'm always, once a journalist, always a journalist, right? Um, But I left my job, my full-time job after 35 years about a year ago to run my nonprofit profit Emily's Hope full-time. I'm still using those skills. So I I have my own podcast, Grieving Out Loud. I I use it on that. And then I have a blog and just the communication, social media. I still use all these skills, but I'm doing it to try to save lives and to try to prevent senseless deaths. And what we're seeing now with fentanyl and the nation's drug, illicit drug supply are senseless deaths, senseless deaths after senseless deaths. As you may know, 110,000 Americans died of what the CDC terms as overdose in 2022. About 80% of those deaths were from fentanyl. So we have a huge problem on our hands and it's a very complex, complicated problem. There are not, you know, quick, easy, simple solutions. If there were, we all would have done it by now. Um, But I, my family is a victim of this. My daughter was a victim of fentanyl poisoning. She didn't know that's what she was getting in the drug that she ingested. Well, one of the saddest things about it is that it doesn't seem there's doesn't seem to be a solution. I mean, you continue. I had a lady reach out to me over the weekend, and she said that her daughter uh, had bought a, a joint of marijuana and it was laced with fentanyl, and that's how she lost her 16 year old. And it, it 
I mean, I'm going to be honest, growing up as a teenager, like I smoked pot, like nobody, nobody told us that there were really any dangers because, you know, my parents were of an age where they were all like my mom was and my mom and dad weren't, but it was like hippies and all of that stuff. Whereas now I'm terrified. I have a 13 year old and a nine year old girl. And every day they go to school, I try to tell them, here's what you need to worry about today. And it's just so unfair that our kids, this is their reality, right? It is, it is very unfair. And it's great that you're talking to your kids, that you have an open dialogue. That is really the start of prevention. Fentanyl is a game changer. So it used to be like when we were growing up, yeah, you could experiment with something or even if you had an issue with a substance, it didn't mean it wasn't a death sentence, right? There was mm-hmm. still going to be an, I mean, we, of course there were heroin overdoses, but there, they weren't as prevalent as what we're seeing now with fentanyl being laced in all illicit drugs. So you had a chance, right? You either had a chance to grow out of that experimental phase and move on, or you had a chance to get help. And I think what outrages me so much is that the number of young people dying from this, I look at the lost potential. I mean, even in my, and it's not just about my daughter. I mean, we use my daughter's story as a tool to raise awareness and to stop stigma, but it's not just about my daughter. It is about hundreds of thousands of young people who have died. I just think about all of the lost potential to the world. You know, my daughter was an artist. You know, she was all the things that we think we can do for our kids. I did. So she was an athlete. She was a gifted student um, in gifted programs, got great grades, and she was an artist. And I just think about what she could have done with her life, what could have resulted, what she could have contributed to the world. And that's just one life. And when I look at all of these young people dying, I think about like the lost, you know, music to the world, the lost businesses, entrepreneurs that could have been out there, the lost plays that could have been written, the things that could have been invented. And I think we have to really wake up as a nation and start to really take um, definitive actions, many, many different types of actions to try to change the course that we're on right now. Well, if you don't mind sharing about Emily, do you, are you okay with sharing the story of what happened to her? Yes, I share it all the time. You know, and one of the reasons I say I can do that, Megan, is because as a journalist, I was trained to share other people's horrors, right? So I would go cover things like the worst things that happen to people. And then I'd have to act like I wasn't a human being, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd have to go on the air and talk about it. Because people always ask me like, how can you talk about Emily? And I I talked to, I've talked to like 15,000 high school students. And in fact, I spoke at the Dolby in LA to 5,000 high school students there as part of the um, DEA's opioid summit right before the pandemic. Um, And I talked to kids and I taught, I, pretty raw when I tell Emily's story. And I credit the only reason I can do that and talk about it so much is because of all this training that I had, right? It's not that it doesn't affect me. Of course it does. I feel like after I talk about it, even after on this podcast, like I just have to like decompress for a little bit, right? I mean, I just feel tired. Um, It takes something out of me, but I feel it's so important to share because if just one life is saved, then it will be worth it. Well, but yeah, I, I mean, can talk about Emily. Say, so what would you I, like to know? <laughs> I say this a lot that gr- that grief is it's a club that nobody wants to be in, right? And yeah. especially losing a child. And on top of that, it grief is a lifelong process. It just is. Yes. So some days I can share, I mean, I have my own s- stories that my most of my audience knows about, but um 
some days I'll share my story of losing my very best friend or my dad or my sister and I'll be completely fine. And then other days I, you know, I have to, I'll start crying or it, it's just, these are your, this is your life. This was your child. This was your family. But I think that it's so important and maybe I'm very spiritual. So maybe that training that you have that you had for all those years talking about such horrific things, there's a reason why you had it. So you could move forward and be able to do what you're doing today, which is so important and the world needs it right now. Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I don't know, but I do know that I can talk about it. I'm able to do it. So I do it. Right. And I, I just always say like with grief, yeah, it's in our society, we want people to just get over it. Right. We give them three days off of work. I got a little more time off of work than that, but you know, basically you get three days off of work and you're expected to move on and act like nothing happened to you and everything's okay. And that will never be the case, especially if you've lost a child. I can't think of any other, anything else that's worse than that, actually. I mean, a loss is loss, right? But losing a child, I always say we're part of a club that we didn't want to join and we can never leave. We're stuck mm -hmm. in this club. But when the work I'm doing through the charity, I have found for me, and I don't think everybody who's lost a child or who's lost someone needs to start a charity or a podcast or whatever. But for me, it's a way to channel my grief and also helping others helps me, right? And it makes like my, my daughter's death was senseless. Like she um, had a problem. We, we knew there was something wrong. And with addiction or substance use disorder, it's a tricky thing, right? So people hide and they deny. And we were three days away from holding an intervention. She was 21 and she used heroin laced with fentanyl. She didn't know it was laced with fentanyl and um, she died. And I always think it's just ridiculous because she should be alive and we should have been able to help her. So I'm taking something that feels so senseless, like there was no sense in it. Right. And I'm trying to create meaning out of it by helping others. Well, that's the best thing you can do and um, and the only thing you can really do. I mean, honestly, what are the alternatives? You know, you, you have a life to live. She, she needs you to share her story. And it's so important. The world really, really needs you and they really, really need her story. And parents like me or the schools or all the people that you affect by telling this story, we all really need it. So that in her memory, you're doing this really to help others. And again, I, at the end of every podcast, I say, be happy by making other people happy. And it is a selfish thing for me because it does, it makes me feel better. It makes us feel better to be able to share and help other people. So going back a little bit, when did she start to have a problem? Was this something just for parents especially mothers of daughters, is this, was this an ongoing issue from the time she was in high school? How did it start? Yeah. So Emily is my oldest of four children. I have to say I was grossly unprepared for the teenage years with her. Now, none of my other kids acted like this either. So um, all my children, in fact, I've, my youngest is a senior in college now. So um, I've been through that time with all of my kids and everyone was different and not all of them were easy, but Emily was my oldest. And so I never experienced, and I never after that did experience the kind of rebellion I experienced with her, mm -hmm. her dad and I were divorced and she is the oldest. My kids were really little, uh, and, and their father suffers from substance use disorder. So you have the hereditary aspect of this too. And 
she really started just putting me through hell at about the age 15 to six, 15 to 16 in there. And I, I took like, I'm a journalist, right? So I know how to research stuff. And I took a course on op oppositional defiant kids. Cause she had been just an amazing kid up to that point. Like we were so close. I was called her my Velcro kid. She was extremely attached to me. Um, and we, I just thought she was the most amazing kid I've ever met in my life. Um, of course, I think all my children are amazing, but you know, it was my firstborn and this rebellion started in high school. And then she ended up, um, having a boyfriend at age 16, who was a year older than her, who was a drug dealer. And I was unable to disentangle her from that relationship. In fact, she was in that relationship until three weeks before she died. So it had been quite an uphill battle. And I had learned um, during this time that every time I approached her with anger, I just drove her further away from me. So I had learned to approach her from, um, from a point of love and compassion. And we were actually really close the last few years before she died. I mean, we had lunch together several times a week. She wasn't living in my house when she died. Um, but she kind of, she knew my stance and she knew I didn't want her using substances. I knew, I didn't know about the heroin. I knew about marijuana and I knew about Xanax. And at one point, um, she told me she'd gotten off Xanax and I had, I'd offer her help over and over again. And um, there aren't a lot of clear, easy pathways for people who love someone who's suffering from substance use disorder if they're not willing to go in for help or once they're an adult. I always say when parents have someone under their roof who they know is using substances, who's under 18, get them the help they need immediately. And I had tried. We had gone to lots of different counselors. I had invoked the law. I mean, it was a... It was a I don't know. I just felt like I went to hell and back with her really in her teenage years. And I just didn't know what to do. It was, it's so hard. It's like, how do you help someone? And then I thought about sending her to a treatment center out of state, but then I heard horror stories about that. You know, she got kicked out of counselors that I'd taken her to. Um, everyone told me she was going to be okay because she came from a good family. And she was going to straighten out and everything, everything was going to be okay. Everybody, judges told me that, principals told me that, everybody told me that, but nobody was factoring in fentanyl, you know, into mm -hmm. all of that. And I wasn't even, I had done story, I was doing stories about the opioid crisis as a journalist. On the day she died, I did a story about Good Samaritan laws and overdoses. So it wasn't like I was naive, but I just never thought, I thought it was marijuana and Xanax, you know? And I think, I don't want to think that about my child, right? And she didn't want me to know because she was ashamed about heroin. So I don't know. I think heroin is, to me, it was such like a thing like, oh my God, like I, I just can't imagine doing that. But I think it's much more commonplace today than many of us know. What, how long ago did this happen? So she died at age 21, five years ago, just a little more than five years ago now. So this started when she was 15. Um, the, I say the trouble started at the, 15. Was this the very beginning stages of like when fentanyl became uh, prevalent in the U.S.? No. So we didn't even know about fentanyl when she was starting okay. down this path. In fact, we were okay. just starting to really. And so she died in 2018. And okay. I think many people didn't even know about fentanyl in 2018, but we were starting to talk about it and it was starting to, you know, become people were becoming more aware. Well, but I had never talked to said, her about fentanyl. Sorry to talk over you. Something you said really struck me. As mothers, we really, you know, we do the best that we can. 
right? And then you were, she probably was affected by the divorce, like all kids can be. And they, and kids do come out the way that they are. And it's, you could, I mean, I have two daughters. One is the complete opposite of the other one. And sometimes I'm like, like why? And I just, so you know, I am in those stages of how do I talk to her? A lot of yelling. I, I, I worry on a constant basis that I'm pushing her away. She's constant, constant, like yesterday screaming at me. I hate you that all the stuff that like teens start to do. And so I think it's important. Oh, it's, I, I, can I just tell you, Angela, I was in tears yesterday for a solid hour and I have an, I've my, one of my older sisters is one of my very best friends and I called her crying and I just said, um, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't want to yell. I don't want to yell. So what you said really struck me. If you, how you said you came at it from a place of love, you know, so it's obvious to me, you were doing everything you possibly could to try and get her help and do all the things you can. But at the root of this, they're going to do what they're going to do. I mean, people come out with the personalities that they're going to come out with. Right. Right. And I think if you, we do so much blaming in this society. So Mm -hmm. people, and I'm a public person, so I've gotten my share of comments on Twitter. Like you're a horrible mother. That's why your kid died. I've gotten, you know, I mean, of course we, and as a society, we never blame the fathers. We always blame the mothers, but I do know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do know that it, that none of my other kids acted in this exact same way. Right. None of the other ones are dead at this point. Not, you know, I mean, I hope they never drop. I mean, any, even good kids can make bad decisions. And I think as moms, you know, we, we take on so much of that, but Emily came out of the womb. I mean, the most difficult birth I ever had, she was a high need fussy baby. She was sensitive to, I mean, there were probably things that we'll learn about the brain and development in years to come that will help me understand her entire personality and her life and and why she was the way that she was, but, um, she also had incredible gifts and was an incredible person. So, I mean, there were both things, right? There were the difficult, there were the, but they were extremes with her. They were always extremes with her. And I think you're right. Every kid is so different. And I mean, my heart was broken by my oldest child long before she died. I mean, I remember feeling like I lost my daughter before I lost her because she would manipulate things in the divorce and go to her dad's, you know, and, oh, my mother's so horrible. I mean, those kinds of things made it very difficult to, to parent her as well. So, and, and it's just, you know, I look back and I actually, I don't, I did, I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. I don't have guilt because I know I was always, even when I had to do hard things, like I called, I called the police on her thinking I could scare her. Right into straightening up because that's what, you know, that's what we were taught like growing up. Right. Um, but that was so hard. I hated doing that. Um, but then, you know, I look back and I have, I have some compassion for myself because I know how hard it was to do some of the things I did and to try. I mean, I was just always fighting for her, always fighting for her. And I still really am fighting for her even in her death, you know? Well, you sure are. And also addicts like there are, there will be, I mean, there's already studies going on, but with AI and all the things that are coming out, we're going to get to the bottom of why some people have this addiction piece 
and it's hereditary. And so when people kind of that, first of all, I wish I could get my hands around the neck of that Twitter user and these trolls (laughs) that hide behind keyboard because it's already hard enough. Like, I don't understand why people have to be so incredibly cruel. Right. Um, but I, I think at some point we will find out why people are prone to certain things, whether it be like something in their brain that just makes them an addict. She had a father that was an addict. So chances are if you have one parent that's an addict, you're going to probably have one kid that tends to go that direction. But the thing that you said, too, about women and blaming ourselves, it's it's a common theme that I get constantly on the podcast is we, you know, we live in this society of, of Instagram and we have to look a certain way. It's like the Barbie movie, which I've been quoting a lot lately. We have to, I love we the Barbie to, movie. I <laughs> loved it. I saw it twice. We have yeah. to look a certain way. We can't be too fat. We can't be too thin. We can't, we have to be a great mom. We have to be involved. We have to take them to sports. I joke all the time that I'm an Uber driver part-time, but I don't get yeah. paid, you know? I mean, it's all of those things. And then throw in the piece of it where you have a child that has an addiction problem. And it's, it's a huge, huge issue for a lot of people in our country, in the world. And people just don't talk about it because it's one of those taboo things where we can't just go out on Instagram and be like, hey, my child is using heroin. What do I do? Instead, we're going to put a filtered picture up of ourselves, right? Right. I mean, I remember when Emily was a teenager, she had an ankle bracelet on because as I said, I had invoked the law. I mean, it was just, those were some of these like last resort things that I was trying to do. And we had a family picture taken and um, I kind of had the ankle bracelet airbrushed out of it. Right. So, I mean, it was a beautiful family picture. She was beautiful. It was a beautiful picture. Nobody would have known she was wearing an ankle bracelet. That's what I was dealing with. And I was doing a lot of hiding of what I was dealing with because I was such a public person. Um, And I remember just like being in court with her and thinking, oh God, everybody in this courtroom recognizes me. But I, all the parents had the same look on their face, right? That of like, I just, I can't believe this is where I am with my child. I don't know how I got here. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's just, and she was, but she's never in trouble as an adult either. I think it would, might've been beneficial if she had been in trouble as an adult um, to alert us more of what was actually going on. You know, I don't know. So the day that you found out obviously was the worst day of your life. Um, mm-hmm. How, how, how did you find out that she had passed or did, how did that happen? So we were supposed to, well, it was a beautiful day. It was in May and I live in a climate where it's not always beautiful like Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. um, she and I would always go hiking together out at this nature area near us. And she had a dog and she was training for a marathon. There were a lot of inconsistencies in Emily's life, you know, things that didn't add up reasons why you wouldn't necessarily know everything that she was doing. But, um, I had texted her and she, she always answered my texts right away because she knew I worried about her and she didn't answer. And then I called her and she didn't answer. And I thought, okay, that's weird, but I'm not going to be this naggy mom who keeps. And so I had gone, um, home and had dinner with my family. She wasn't living with me. She was living in an apartment. And I got a call that evening, um, to come that there was an emergency to come to her apartment. She was, when I got there, there were EMTs, um, working on her, but she had, I mean, they gave her two doses of Narcan. I was there. It was very traumatic. 
Um, I talk about it when I speak to students. I go right back to that day and I go into details. It's hard for me, but I feel like they really need to hear that, the reality mm -hmm. of it, the reality of dealing with a child's death. Um, and so I was there. I stayed with her for hours after her death. Even, the, you know, the crime lab came in and I had to go out and I went back in and I mean, I saw her being zipped up into a body bag. It was awful. Um, and I have a lot of, you know, flashbacks to that day. So, but there was nothing. She was alone in her room and she had used alone in her room with the door locked. So there was nothing anybody could have done to save her other than if we, maybe we would have done the intervention earlier. We were just planning it out so carefully. You know, we were working with the interventionist. We were all writing our, um, talks that day that she died and we, like I said, we were set to meet with her and try to convince her. I had a bed for her in a treatment center. Um, but, you know, we didn't get that chance. So I, I knew in my instincts, everything in my instincts told me we had to act. So we were doing that. I just didn't realize, you know, how. Well, really, I didn't realize how time was of the essence, how it should have been like two, two days earlier, right? But you just are doing the best you can with what you know. Which must have been so painful to know that if it was just two days later, that would be such a hard thing to deal with. It is. But even if we would have gotten her into that treatment center, even if we would have, you know, held that intervention and she would have willingly gone to the treatment center and we would have gotten her treatment, even if all that would have happened, she still could have died of fentanyl poisoning a week later, a month later, six months later, two years later. I mean, the, the truth is when someone is suffering from substance use disorder, relapse is a big part of it. And, you know, she could have also done beautifully, but, you know, we just don't know. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D, designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Well, let me ask you, and I'm so sorry. I know that story must be horrific and the flashbacks and all of the things that you have to deal with. But is the, if there is one thing that you could tell parents, you know, having dealt with this, I mean, they're like I said, that they come out the way that they come out. But is there something when you go and talk to parents and students that you can tell people to kind of be on the lookout for? 
Sure. Well, one of the things that we're doing that I am so passionate about at Emily's Hope is we are doing prevention curriculum, kindergarten through fifth grade. We actually did our pilot last year and we've launched it in four states this school year. And we're telling kids how to protect their bodies and brains because I believe my daughter didn't get the whole message. Um, she was the poster child for D.A.R.E., but we're going into like how to how to protect your body, what drugs do to your body, what they do to your brain, what substance use disorder is, um, who is a trusted adult and emotions and pressures. So we're trying to cover everything because I believe prevention is the key. And I think we have to start these conversations in kindergarten with medication versus candy. You know, who do you take medication from? Who's a trusted adult? We have to start these conversations really young and, and actually science and um, research shows that the younger prevention efforts start, the greater impact and the greater success that you have. So I'm really committed to that. And I think we have to be honest with kids. And I think we have to tell kids about what's out there and how dangerous it can be. And because kids want to protect themselves, right? They don't, they're not looking to die. So I think if they know that, if they're equipped with all the information, but once somebody has started going down that path, if you're struggling with a teenager, I think early interventions are so important. And I think sometimes those can be scary to parents. Um, I probably should have admitted her um, to a behavioral health unit once, but they assessed her and said she didn't need to be admitted. She was probably 15 at the time. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I just think you felt, trust your gut and act immediately. I think you just have to act as quickly as you can if you know something isn't right. So like follow your instincts, especially as women mm -hmm. and mothers, we have these yes. things and sometimes I don't listen yes. and I, right. and it's come back to bite me. I think it's so important that you start talking to your kids. It's a really good point when they're young, because the problem is, is we put our heads in the sand and we think, oh, it's the same thing as with body like protecting yeah. your body and sexual predators. We really need to talk to our kids really young about this stuff because the statistics are so high with that too. Um, when you, when you talk to parents and there's sadly such a huge population of parents that have been through a similar situation to you, is there something that you gives you solace in that, like that community? Is there, I mean, cause I now have had done multiple episodes on this. And like I said, I wanted to introduce you to my friend, Michelle, but for her story, her son was uh, targeted on Snapchat. So this is a huge problem, obviously that young kids are addicted to their phones and addicted to social media. He went to buy a Xanax. It was laced with fentanyl. Right. Kids are really comfortable taking pills, right? I mean, we're in a society where there's a pill for everything. So it's no surprise that dealers are targeting kids in this way. I've um, talked to many parents on my podcast as well, who've had the same thing happen. Their child bought one pill on Snapchat. They found them most of the time dead in their own homes and like in their rooms, they're teenagers, you know? Um, it's just, it's scary. So I think the, we, we do have to hold these social media companies accountable. I know there are some lawsuits out there. I've talked to some parents who are suing Snapchat. Um, we have to have better protections in place for our children. So that can happen, but it really starts with the education of letting kids know these kids think they're real pills, right? They think they're taking someone's prescription pill and they aren't, they're fake. 
So I think we have to start with the education with our kids as soon as possible, letting them know you don't take anything from anybody because it, it can be deadly. I mean, that's, that's the truth. That's what it's comes. That's what it comes down to. And what was the aftermath for you of that grief? Like, what was it like um, knowing that you had to pick yourself up? And I'm, ta- and I'm really want my listeners to hear this because somebody, you know, has been affected by this crisis or somebody, God forbid, you will know, will be affected by this. The, the statistics of this, it increases on every year. Um, hopefully we can get a system in place. I know in LA, they have been able to move forward in the public schools with Narcan on campus. Mm-hmm. But this is a law that not every state has. I'm, I'm assuming you have, you're very big behind that law. Can you talk about that before answering my other question? Sorry about that. Yeah. Many states are allowing Narcan in schools now. I know we are in our state and those, those um, life-saving measures are so essential. So Narcan distribution, now Narcan is over the counter. We're working to start to distribute that for free because even it's $50, right? For two doses, Mm -hmm. that could be really spendy or $49 or whatever. We're also um, distributing fentanyl testing strips. A lot of, there's some controversy around that, but you know, we just say, Hey, we're not encouraging people to use drugs. We just want to keep them alive. We don't want them to die. So we know people are going to use drugs and we want to keep them alive until they're ready to get help or until we can get them help. So those tools are are also essential life-saving tools that we have. But what is scary about now about the drug supply is, you know, you have xylazine out there, you have other analogs of opioids that are coming out that uh, Narcan doesn't... Xylazine. Um, it's a horse tranquilizer that's being laced in many of these um, illicit drugs now. And Narcan doesn't work on it. So um, that, you know, that's why I always say, like, we have to prevent this problem before people even start because the drug dealers are just always one step ahead, the nefarious people. And people always ask me, too, like, well, why do they want to kill their customers? What is this all about? What I've been told by the DEA is that they, they're not really seeking to kill their customers, although they don't care if some people die. Um, they're seeking to get their customers very addicted fast so that they keep coming back for more and they can earn more money. Um, so I don't know. Uh, so, sometimes it just seems to me like this horrible, evil plot to kill all of our young people in the United States. But I just, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a tough, tough issue. But um, are you, in terms are you of- involved with the with the laws in place about stopping the, the, nar- the, sorry, not the Narcan, but the fentanyl coming into the States and how it's happening. Um, I am not personally involved in those laws, but a lot of people will say just shut down the border. And that sounds really simple and easy. Unfortunately, um, these illicit drugs, these deadly drugs are coming in through ports of call. They're coming in on ships. They're coming in on planes. And once they get to this country, about 85% are being dealt by American citizens. So you've got Americans selling to other Americans, right? So we have to stop that part of it. Um, and also, I've talked to some people in the National Office of Drug Control Policy that are traveling to places like China and India and Mexico because the raw ingredients come from China and India, and then they usually go to Mexico where it's manufactured. And I've talked to them and they've talked a lot about what a big business this is and how these people who are running these large cartels and these, 
um, that they are, they have accountants, they have lawyers. It's a huge, like multi-billion dollar business. And so we really have to cut off all their ways of conducting this business as well. We have to get to the accountants and the lawyers and all the people they surround themselves with. Um, so it's really a complex problem. And uh, I'm I'm so sad because so many more people will die before we even can figure out how to stop it, right? Do you foresee it getting worse because you just brought up that new drug or do you foresee it easing up over like that's my like that's what I question and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, it is terrifying. I think the secret does the secret or the key, I should say, mm -hmm. um, lies in prevention. And I, I think it was the deaths have maybe been a little bit flat so far this year. Um, that's a good sign. If we can have, you know, not have more people die and then eventually start to see deaths go down because Narcan's more readily available, fentanyl testing strips are more readily available, prevention efforts or are more aggressive, um, then I think we will start to turn the tide, but I don't think, and there's a law enforcement piece to this too, but you just can't arrest your way out of it. I think that's the main takeaway when it comes to law enforcement. It takes so much more I than think, that. I think too, they, they're not, there's people that are not reporting that it was a fentanyl overdose. Oh, I think there's a lot of sure. like people that bury it just like suicide people, you know, somebody will, post something like they lost their child, but nobody ever knows why it's a similar mm -hmm. thing. There's such a, that people don't want those judgments cast on them, you know, right. whereas like, let's be real because we have a crisis in our country, a major, major, major crisis with drugs, addiction, obviously I said, and mental health and suicide. I mean, there, these things all go hand in hand and homelessness. So there's gotta be some solutions and it seems like when I hear that it's like not as high as previous as the previous year was, well, that's great news. But is that is that the truth? Is my question? Yeah. You know, I don't know. And I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do hide it; they don't want to talk about it. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so vocal. I want to set an example. I always say it's going to take a bunch of angry moms, and of course, there are dads out there and other people that are, you know, other relatives that are acting on behalf of their loved one they've lost or because they've lost someone in this way. I always say it's going to take a bunch of angry moms to turn this around. Um, if you go back to the AIDS crisis, I always liken it to that too. And, and you could say the same with suicide. You know, there was so much shame and stigma around people dying of AIDS. People were writing fake obituaries. Nobody was talking about it. Well, it took a bunch of angry moms, you know, going to Washington. You remember the AIDS quilts and all these things. And, and now it's not a death sentence. Now, you know, there have been enough funds put into it. Um, to come up with medications. And there are some promising medications for substance use disorder on the horizon. And we have, we have some medications that are disposal right now to treat opioid use disorder, but there's still a stigma around it. Not every doctor wants to prescribe them. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we just have a ways to, the, the stigma is what holds us back. You know, it holds us back in making true progress. I think that a hundred percent. And by the way, I'll be an angry mom with you because I love that. <laughs> I would love to be involved however I can in this cause because I think it's so important. And I think, again, like I talked about in the beginning, if you're listening to this, because it's sometimes I'm, you probably get this too with your podcast. I have a lot of people that go, oh, Megan, I love what you do. I think it's so great, but I just can't hear, listen to it. 
It's too upsetting. It's too right. upsetting to listen to your, I don't want to listen to your podcast because I don't want to hear about loss and grief and all of this stuff. And the more that we normalize talking about this stuff, at some point in your, your life, you will be affected by grief. You will be affected by addiction. You will be affected by all of these things. Not everybody will, but everybody will be affected by grief at some point in their life. So why not talk about it? Because the more, like I say this all the time, it's like a fire starting, you're building that fire and rubbing the two sticks together and then it kind of spreads. And this is a thing that could be positive and really save lives and change lives and, you know, really help people in general that, to, that with somebody like you that needs to talk about the loss of their daughter, Emily, and she had a name and she was a human being. And it's not like, you know, a lot of times we see on social media, oh, so another person died. I, I see it on a weekly basis now. So-and-so died, this person on a soap or somebody died because they took their own life to suicide. And then the next day we forget about that person because there's somebody else. If we would just talk about these things like we're talking about today and like at least be open to hearing about it, the world would be a much better place and we would not be in the situations that we're in. So, um, that's right. And I just, I don't want other parents to feel alone in their, in the stigma and the shame of this. You know, I, I feel really strongly about that. And I know sometimes people get tired of hearing me talk about it, right? It's kind of consumed my life now. Right. So I know people get tired of it. I don't really care. I'm going to keep talking about it because if, you know, one other mother or father or brother or sister, or whomever hears me and knows they're not alone and knows that this is, this is, you, you need a community, you know, you need to, there's nobody that can quite understand what it's like to lose a child other than another parent who's lost a child. Right. And so we need each other for these things. And if some people don't want to listen, you're right. Eventually they're going to get whacked over the head by grief or loss or something like that. And then they're going to go, Oh, Oh yeah, this is what it was about. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want that for them, but it's going to happen. I mean, we don't get a, get out of jail card free in this life. <laughs> we say human, when it comes to suffering. <laughs> yeah. It's the human experience. It's not like we're all going to yeah. live these lives where you're never going to go through pain and hurt, you know? So it's really right. important to be, be honest and talk about these things. Going backwards, because I asked you a million questions and I apologize, but I wanted to hear about the grief piece for you and when you got, were able, and really I shouldn't say pick yourself up, but just be able to say, mm -hmm. you know what, like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is what I'm going to do in honor of Emily. How did you get to that place? Because I think that's a really important piece too, for somebody that could be listening to this and lost a child to a fentanyl overdose or a lace fentanyl um, cigarette, like somebody just told me the other day. So how did you get kind of to that place? Of course, I was completely devastated. I always say you had to pick me up off the floor, you know, after my daughter's death. And I had horrible, I had really never suffered from anxiety, but I had horrible anxiety. Um, I mean, it's the, it, it's such a, it's, there aren't adequate words for me to use to talk about how I felt and what I went through during those, you know, first days and weeks and even a couple months, you know, after she died. 
I had a lot of support from the community, which was nice. I had a lot of people over at my house and a lot of people came to the funeral and all of those things. I remember thinking like, this isn't the way our lives were supposed to turn out. This, this isn't right. I don't, I, it, but there was, there's no undoing it. You know what I mean? Like this is reality. You can't undo it. And I think that's what just kept hitting me over and over again. And then just the fact that she was gone was just, she's not supposed to be gone. And, you know, that's my kid and one of my greatest loves. And, um, I just, I struggled and I didn't know I, I was working on television. I didn't know if I'd be able to go back and work on television. You know, it's such, it terrified me to even think about doing that. But I realized, you know, that I had to go back to work. This is what I did. That was my job. I still had three other kids. I needed health insurance. I was going to put them through college, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, and then I just, it just dawned on me that I had asked so many parents over the years to talk to me after the loss of a child, after horrible things that happened, lots of people, right? So like, how could I be this hypocrite and not talk about it? And so I just decided that I was going to tell her story and I had the platform to do it, which launched the charity, you know? And so I guess I was just in a position where I just, I just, I just realized that I didn't, I never felt like I really had a choice, you know, to me, the idea of not talking about it never even occurred to me or just pretending like it didn't happen or just, and I actually had a coworker who lost a child in a similar way, who never talked about it. And to this day, like people don't know. Um, so that is a choice that you could make, but to me, it wasn't even on the table. So I, I, I can't explain exactly why that was. Um, but I, as I've told you, I'm, I'm glad I did it because I think it has given my life so much purpose and my pain, a lot of purpose too. How, how are your other children able to deal with this? Because sibling loss is, especially yeah. this way, is really horrifically hard and you carry it in your lives always. And they were so young, you know, 17 mm -hmm. and 16, and um, they do carry it and it has been hard. I think they were really worried about me at first. You know, they were, all, they were really worried about me. In fact, my daughter thought she couldn't even go away to college very far. And she did end up going about four and a half hours away to a different city. I said, no, you can go to college. Um, but I think the charity, this has been the most miraculous thing for me to see is how much the charity has helped them, has helped them process it, has helped them have less shame and stigma. My son was so ashamed of the way his sister died because he, he would never do such a thing, you know? And so... Mm -hmm. um, but you know, now he volunteers at all the events. He helps with some of the marketing of the charity. Um, my daughter um, is an artist and she's done um, some of the children's materials for our education curriculum. And my other son helps at all of the events and is what, you know, has a sticker and a t-shirt and is very vocal about it. So the charity has brought us all on board for the same thing and has really helped us all, I think, process our grief and unite together to just make sure this doesn't happen to other people, even though it continues to happen to other people. We just, we all really are committed to the charity, but they've all dealt with it in their own ways. And there, there certainly will be dealing with it for a lifetime. I'm, I'm not naive. In fact, we were just thinking about doing a podcast together about how, about how death affects siblings and how siblings cope. So I just have to get them all in the same room at the same time. <laughs> I think that's an amazing idea because people really need to hear that 
Um, I have a dear, one of my best friends just lost her husband suddenly. And, um, and you would think, you know, I don't know how you are, but with me, I never know the right thing to say. And I have a podcast about grief and loss and I have gone through it so much in my life. And yet it's, I don't in, in a selfish way, I don't want to be taken back, but it's the reality that you have to like go at it head on and be there for people. People really, really need to have love and be surrounded by love, especially kids. You know, it's not right. to bury lot to just bury um, grief and not talk about it. And, it. and to no fault of my mom, but I lost my sister as a little girl and we just, we didn't, I didn't, we weren't, I wasn't talking about it until I was a teenager. And so I think it's really important that your kids are involved in their, I love that your other daughter, I think you said is an artist too, just like Emily. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Different really mediums. Special. But yeah. 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 That's very special. Um, for my listeners, if there's a way for them to get involved in your charity or reach out to you, um, can you share that with them? Sure. So our website is emilyshope.charity. And we have all kinds of resources and things for people on our website. And our, you know, our podcast is available, Grieving Out Loud, wherever you get your podcasts, also on our website. And we do have um, resources on how to get help um, for you or, or for a loved one. And we also have, like, I, I write my blog so other parents know they're not alone. And we also have a support group for people who've lost someone to fentanyl poisoning or overdose. And so we're trying to do everything we can um, to support people, especially families like mine, who've gone through something like this. Well, I'm so grateful that you came on today, Angela. And I have a feeling you have an angel that's looking over you. I'm pretty proud of her mom. Um, Thank you. In closing, everybody please listen to this podcast, share it with your friends, share it with, um, you know, maybe don't play it for your kids, but just, you know, maybe reach out to Angela. Maybe you talk at schools, universities, there's always resources out there. And the more that we share the realities of what's going on in our, in our world and be realistic about it and not keep up with the Joneses and live these phony lives, the better off we're going to be as a society. It's really, really, really important that we take our heads out of the sand because like I said, on a daily basis, we're hearing about this and it, it's a massive, massive issue in our country in particular. So thank you again, Angela. It was such an honor to meet you. Like I said, um, I would love to be involved however I can. So we're going to connect after this. And for all of you, like I always say, every podcast, be happy by making other people happy. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.